Good morning, church family. It's good to see you all. Uh, if, you, if you know me well, you know this. You might, some of you may not know that I, I am, I'm a baseball fan. Um, some, for some people, that's a great thing. Some people, that's like a snooze fest. Uh, I love baseball. Baseball, um, uh, it's one of the things I love about baseball is just the drama of it. It's, it's, a, it's, it's a poetic sport. It's got a lot of drama to it. Um, and and the, the, the big moments of the game can't just fly by because the batter still has to walk to the plate. The pitcher still has to walk to the mound. They've still got to get three outs. Every out, there's, there's three strikes that have to be gotten. There, there's a sequence to the pitches. Uh, there's pressure that mounts from each, as each out is gotten. There's, there's greater pressure on the next at bat in those big moments where there's men on base at the, in the ninth inning, at the end of the game. Um, and in that big moment, you never know who's going to be at the plate, right? Like Carlos Correa may be there. He may come up big for you, but you might also have your, your backup weak hitting catcher up and you're, you're, and you're in for a bad moment, right? Um, uh, but if you talk to a, a baseball coach or you even you hear the, the big league coaches, they'll often say, yeah, but the, the game wasn't won then. The game wasn't won then. The, the big moment was, uh, was that, that stellar defensive play in the fifth inning. The big moment was uh, that RBI two out or RBI one out ground out that happened in the second inning. That was that was the big moment. That was the thing uh, that really was important. It didn't feel it then, but it was. And I, I think we're gonna we're, we're prone to see our spiritual witness this way that there are these big moments that really matter. Certain divine appointments that really just, they, those are the ones that carry the game-altering uh, consequences. And we celebrate those, right? That, that conversion of, of, a, of a friend who finally trusts Jesus. Um, maybe, maybe an important sermon that really spurred you on to do a work. Um, or that opportunity to stand up for your faith in the midst of persecution. These grand moments seem so clear and, and we feel their weight. Uh, but our actual Christian testimony, I think, is much more mundane. Uh, much more second inning, much more all of life. Last week, as we started this three-week series called Love Thy Neighbor, uh, Lawson walked us through the great commandment to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. And and we could be tempted, I think, uh, to see loving our neighbor simply as being the Good Samaritan. Uh, Those big moments, when you see somebody bloody in a ditch, now's my time to shine. Now's my time to step up and help them. And by God's grace, I pray that we'll be faithful in those big moments. Many of you this week jumped in and you're serving each other and praise God for that. But today, as as we look at this classic Acts 17 passage, um, Paul is gonna walk around this pluralistic city of Athens. And I, I think that we're gonna see that like Paul, everywhere we go, everywhere you go and I go, the, the game is still being played. Uh, we're, we're, we're not in uh, first century pagan Athens, but we walk around our neighborhoods and our workplace corridors where people need something better than what the world is selling them. And by God's grace, I, I pray that we'll see that we are, we are in the game, that we have a role to play. We, uh, and, and how will we be faithful uh, to love our neighbors? What will spur us to love the ones God's placed in front of us? So I want us to see four catalysts that will help us, I think, fan into flame uh, our love for our neighbors. Uh, and these, the four are this. Number one, we'll see what they really want. Number two, why we live here. Number three, we'll see that God neighbored us. And number four, we'll see a plan. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you.
We thank you for, uh, we thank you for difficulty. We thank you for hardship because of what it reminds us about your sovereign care. We need those reminders. We need our own, our own uh, independence questioned so that we might see our need for you. And so, Father, this, this, this morning, right now, by your spirit, would you, would you help us? We, we struggle with this. We struggle to love as you have loved us. We struggle to see with the eyes of faith, to see with the eyes of Jesus as we look out into uh, the, the lives of those around us. So help us. We need you in this. Move in us by your spirit. And we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. So, so what will spur us to love our neighbors? Number one, what they really want. We'll see what they really want. Paul showed up in Athens and he wasn't really planning to be there. Uh, this was like not the plan. Paul had been preaching the gospel in Thessalonica and the, the Jewish leaders, they, they ran him out of town. He goes to another town, preaches there. Those Jewish leaders from Thessalonica show up there. They're like, hey, get out of here too. I mean, they're running him all over the place. And, and some, some friends of Paul, uh, part of the church, they, they lead him down to the coast to Athens and, and leave him there. And so Paul's waiting there for his buddies. He's waiting for Silas and he's waiting for Timothy and he's just got time to kill in Athens. He's like a tourist. Uh, but, but if you know Paul, he doesn't do tourists. Um, <clears throat> and so Athens, he's there. He's in this great historical city, right? It's the intellectual center of ancient Greece. You got Plato and Socrates and Aristotle. Uh, they, the Athenians prided themselves on how well they thought and, and so Paul walks around this historical city and, and look what happens. Uh, actually, look back, just a few verses, back in verse 16. Uh, this is what we see of what Paul said. It says, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was deeply distressed when he saw that the city was full of idols. So we don't get any of Paul's commentary about the beauty of the architecture, uh, nothing about the incredible thinkers. No, Paul looked around and in that beautiful city, all he could see was a city full of idols. One Roman historian said uh, that it was easier to find a God in Athens than a man. There were sculptures and paintings for the gods. There were temples and shrines and statues to Athena and Apollo and Venus and Bacchus and Neptune and Diana and a host of others, not to mention all the gods of, of Olympus. Uh, they were on display, that were worshiped, that were revered. And, and Paul hasn't even said anything yet here but, but we, you can just feel he's like imploding on the inside. He's deeply distressed, Luke tells us. And this, this is the same word that's used in the Greek copy of, of our New Testament, the Septuagint, uh, that's used of God when he is, he's jealous of people, when he sees his people worshiping other gods. His, it's his, his jealousy, his anger. Why? God, God calls himself this. He, he said, I'm a jealous God. Not because he's insecure, not like a jealous boyfriend. Uh, no, because he hates sin uh, and he hates the destruction it brings. And so uh, Paul sees this idolatry and he feels that way. Uh, he feels the same way, and, but he's also filled with compassion. We're gonna see his compassion play out. Like Jesus in Matthew 9, when, when Christ looked out at those who suffered and he saw all those who still needed to be healed, um, but that he wouldn't be able to have, have the time to heal. And, and Matthew tells us that he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dejected like sheep without a shepherd. 
So this is Paul's experience just after a brief walk in Athens. He's frustrated by the idolatry and yet he's compassionate to the people. Why? Because he knows what they really want. This is how we feel sometimes when we see our lost friends. They're chasing after their idols and it's frustrating, right? It's frustrating to see the people that we love when we know that they're thirsty, but all they're drinking is sand. What they, what they really want, what they really need is a savior, someone who can really satisfy them. And so Paul doesn't respond with an explosion of anger. He doesn't rail on them. He doesn't go flipping over temple shrines. No, he, he moves toward them. He engages them. He, he speaks to their need. And as he, as he starts to talk to the people in the, in the streets, quickly some philosophers in the streets are like, hey, you're talking about some new stuff. Uh, we're a city that likes new stuff. Let's get you to the, the important people. You can tell them your new stuff. So he takes them, they, they take them to this place called the Areopagus, which, is, uh, which literally is the hill of Ares, uh, the, Greek, the Greek version of, of Mars, which this is why you may have heard it called Mars Hill. So he's at Mars Hill and he walks into Mars Hill where these, these uh, political leaders and, and city leaders and thinkers uh, are. And, and look at what Paul says. He says to them, people of Athens, I see that you're extremely religious in every respect. Now this, this is not an insult. Uh, our culture kind of uses the term religion as, as a negative you know, people, even Christians will say religion, that's dead, that's empty, that's ritualistic. What we really want is relationship with Jesus. And that's true. Um, there's certainly truth to that. But, but this is not how the Bible uses the word religion. Not even how church history uses the word religion. Religion in the scriptures is a word of devotion, of action, of worship. Uh, James, in fact, even says that pure religion is the religion that cares for orphans and widows. And so Paul's not insulting them by saying this. He's just saying, hey, you guys are going for it. Like, I see it. I see what you're doing. You're active. You're devoted. You're, they're, they're, they're very religious. And then verse 23, he says, for as I was passing through and observing the objects of your worship, I even found an altar on which was inscribed to an unknown God. So Paul walks in. He goes, I, I see you. I see what you're devoting yourself to. You want so badly to, to, to cover all your bases. You, you want so badly, you want it so badly that, that you've made a statue to the, just in case we forgot that God, God. Uh, we, just in case we missed God, God. Uh, you're worshiping, literally, they're worshiping everywhere in every direction just so they don't miss anything. And, and this is why uh, they were even talking to Paul. That they want, hey, you got something new. Let's, maybe this is another object of worship, something better. But in all their searching, in all their pursuit of something new, Paul is going to show them every altar, every god, every new idol. It's just an acknowledgement that the last one didn't work. All you're seeking, all your longings still aren't met. You're like Bono. You still haven't found what you're looking for. Uh, and Paul's going, you want a true way to see? You want a one-stop God for worship? Let me tell you about the real thing, the true God, the only God. You've got, you've got a God for love. They've got a different God for fertility, a God for farming, one for war, one for sex, a God for the sea, one for rain. But I'm, I'm, I'm telling you, he's telling them, there's one. There's one God of all gods, one Lord of all lords. And I think this scene is a little bit like foreign to us, right? In 2021 in America, it's hard to imagine a world where, where lots of people are bowing before uh, actual idols, but really, worship hasn't changed that much. 
The altars just look different. Paul walked around Athens and we walk around the block. And all around us, there's worship. There are idols of wealth and comfort here. There's sexual idolatry there. There's, there's pursuit of pleasure and vanity, of power and gluttony. This, this is where we live. This is the idolatry we live in. And as your neighbors welcome you into their lives, they're, they're gonna show you their hopes, their trust, their security, or their lack thereof. Some of them are so unsure of eternal realities, so dissatisfied that they're saving their money to buy something, anything that might be a temporary fix. So what do we have to offer to a world that is filled with idols? Listen to what Paul said here. He's gonna gonna basically tell them, "You're, you're flying blind. You don't just need another new God. You need new eyes. You need a new view of the world. He says to them in verse 23, he said, therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, he is Lord of heaven and earth does not live in shrines made by hands. He tells them, you want something real? Here's what's real. The true God, he creates. He's the creator. A sovereign being that's responsible for bringing all matter into existence. This worldview, that, that, does not, that can't coexist with a plurality of gods, with their view of the world. Paul's saying the true God, he made all of it, everything. Clouds and fish, Trees, scorpions, horses, mountains, men and women, you and me, all the creation was made by one God. And if there is one, who, one God who is a creator of all things, guess what? He doesn't live in your little shrine. He doesn't live in your little man-made temple. You imagined that. God is bigger than that. Paul's saying there's one outside of, not just outside of your shrine, he's outside, he sits on top and outside of the world. He made it all. He spoke it into being, into existence, out of nothing, simply by saying, by saying, let there be. And if he's a creator, that means ownership. A creator means purpose. Our world languishes without meaning, searching for meaning everywhere. But to have a creator means you have purpose. You You're not an accident. And then he goes on in verse 25. He says, neither is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives everyone life and breath and all things. So not only is God creator, he's the sustainer. He didn't just create it all and leave it up to you. He didn't just spin the top of this earth uh, and and walk away. No, he stays involved. Why? Not because he needed us, but because we need him. When we were in Thailand years ago, uh, we visited several Buddhist temples. And just outside these temples uh, would be the the temple monks. Um, And you would see a number of them walking around and there would be people there meeting with the monks. And the Buddhist people, as a means of making merit, of stacking up their righteous deeds just in hopes that it would be enough, uh, they would bring food to the monks. And they'd bring groceries, they'd bring all sorts of things for the monks to take home um, every day. And, and of course, I, 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 that's messed up theology, certainly. I don't, I, I don't know if it translates. I don't know if you guys should start bringing food to the pastors. Um, but it can't hurt. It probably, uh, it, it's, not, it's not, there's nothing theologically sound about it. Um, but uh, that's just a side note. But 
<laughs> but outside of the temple, you had the monks receiving food. There were also shrines. You can see in the picture, there are these little statues. There's, there's big ones like this. There's smaller ones. And they're, they're placed all around. And there'll be people coming regularly, kneeling before the statues, lighting candles, lighting incense. Um, and they would also bring food to the statue. They'd, and not just food, but if you see in that picture, there's actually two bottles in that picture. Uh, uh, one's like a soda bottle and one's a water bottle with a straw in it. As though the gold statue might go, I'm thirsty. I'm gonna pick up the bottle and take a sip. Uh, but please take the cap off first. I need a straw to drink my water. And I regularly think about the person who has to walk around at the end of the day or at the end of the week pick up the food so it doesn't rot, take those bottles of water. And what, what do they have to be thinking when they're dumping out bottles of water that were brought to Buddha? Our God doesn't need water. He made water. Water needs him. Without the two H's and the O of H2O, it would fall apart. He definitely doesn't need a straw either, right? He, he certainly could take his own bottle cap off. God needs nothing, not food, not air, not relaxation. You bring nothing that will sustain God. No, he sustains you. This view demolishes and rails against the common worldview today that says, that says the only person who can help you is you. But reality, knowing the true God means you actually need God to breathe. God gives breath. You're alive, how? He gives you life. God does not depend on us. No, just the opposite. He gives us everything. We depend on him. This is who he is. And in all their worship, all their altars, the Athenians were searching for what was real. And Paul was saying, hey, you've not found it yet. Here it is. Here's what you really want. And that's what our neighbors really want too. They want something true, something that won't disappoint, something that's real. Paul says, here it is. Here is the one true God, the one who made and sustains it all. The second catalyst for loving our neighbor is uh, why we live here. We'll see why we live here. Sovereignty and neighborhoods. Sovereignty and neighborhoods. Uh, you, may, you may ask, okay, what is sovereignty? God's sovereignty. How does that encourage me to love my neighbor? Um, listen, listen to Paul in verse 26. He says, from one man, he has made every nationality to live over the whole earth and has determined their appointed times and the boundaries of where they live. Okay, so this is, this is broader than just my life, my breath. God made whole people groups. He designed ethnicity. He gave each of them life and breath. And he, he gave each of us a genetic makeup throughout history. He established nations and kings. Even more granularly, he determined where different people groups would live what part of the globe they would be on, when and where they would exist. But, but don't stop there. Zoom in a little further. He placed you and me on the globe. He appointed our times and our boundaries, the time and place that your family would live, that, in, that many generations ago, they would come to this continent, to this country, to this state, all the way to the Bayou City. By his sovereign wisdom, he determined that you would be here. And so now here we are. He placed you here in 2021 in North Point, in Rosewood Trails, in Canyon Gate, in North Star Estates, 
in Marymount Apartments, in Decker Prairie, in Magnolia, in Cyprus, in Spring, down to the very street that you live on. Later, he'll say, in him we move, or in him we live and move. We aren't simply alive by the providence of God, we move about by his providence. So here's a question for us to consider. Why do you live in your house? Maybe you like the curb appeal. Maybe the kitchen countertops sold you. Maybe it was the yard. Maybe, maybe you like the school district. Maybe it was just close to your work. Or, or maybe you go, man, I just got a screaming deal on this one. Whatever human mechanisms brought you there, your address was written in heaven. God didn't simply know where you would live. He determined it. He appointed it. Rosario Butterfield says that God never gets the address wrong. God's sovereign providence truly placed you on your neighborhood or in your neighborhood, on your street. And it's not just you. This is every person, every lost person, every Christian, every agnostic, every atheist, everyone on your block. And why? Verse 27, he did this so that they might seek God and perhaps they might reach out and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. If you're here today, maybe, maybe it's your first time here today. Maybe you've, maybe you've never been to Redeemer before. Maybe, maybe you felt far from God. Maybe you just came here because you saw a building and you live around the corner. It's no mistake that you're here. God invites you to seek him. He's, he's not far from you. Christian, I, I want you to think about your home. Like imagine, imagine in your head the vantage point that you have from the front door of your home. Imagine the house across the street or maybe the apartment across from yours. That's why you live there. Imagine the neighbor on either side of you. That's why you live there. Imagine the coworker that you talk to every day, the one who sits at the desk next to you, the one you always talk to at lunch. Yeah, you're, you're there to do a job, but you're there for them. When I perform weddings, I, I, I always talk about the sovereignty of God, like your marriage, your, your love story. It's not a ch- chance encounter. God did that. Why? So that you might seek him, so that others might see him through you. There's no mistake about it. God has placed you where you are so that those who are in need, that they might seek out and find and, and the Lord Jesus. And what a tragedy it would be if, if all your thoughts, all my thoughts about where we live were only about my life. Now, if I truly believe in the providence of God, I must believe he's doing something. That he's planted me amongst my neighbors, amongst my coworkers and my classmates. Students, who sits next to you in your classes at school? Who's on your soccer team? your theater group, your homeschool co-op, your third period history class. Why are you there? Is it to grow and excel in your sport or your activity? Is it to get good grades so you can get into a good college? Sure, it is those things. But what a tragedy it would be if you got all A's, became a star in your sport or some other pursuit, you got into a great college and you wasted three years of small talk with the kid on your team. The one whose home life was a wreck, 
who questioned the existence of God, who couldn't imagine what grace was like. Guys, we, 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 I have to, this is for me. We, we've got to open our eyes to the need that's around us, to the souls that are around us. Around uh, 30 years ago, Lori and, and John Godbold uh, had a little neighbor girl named Shelby Montgomery. Some of you, some, few of you may, you may know Shelby. Um, and she moved in down the street from them, her family. Over time, she became good friends with my wife, Amy, and, and Shelby was always around. Lori babysat several of the other nearby kids, and so Shelby was just, she was just around. Uh, Shelby's home life was difficult. Her mom struggled. Several men uh, came and went over the years. None of them were Shelby's dad. But one of the constants in her life was, was the Godbolds. They had her over for dinner. Sometimes she showed up for a bowl of cereal before the bus came. They took her to church. They were there for conversations about boys, about life, about God. Their church family became Shelby's church family. Their pastors became Shelby's pastors. And while her home life disintegrated, the Lord saved her. And so when her mom decided to sell the house and move out of state, uh, while Shelby was still in high school, where did she go? Well, to the Godbolds, of course. And so this spunky little girl who's now getting closer to adulthood, who could beat me in basketball, still frustrating, um, the Godbolds had taken an interest in her years earlier. It invested into her. And now she officially became part of their family. She moved in. She got a room, a more permanent place to the table. She became family. A couple years later, after graduating high school, Shelby met a young man who was pursuing pastoral ministry. They, they got married. Uh, of course, John Godwell walked her down the aisle. And this lost little girl is now raising children of her own, teaching them to love Jesus. Shelby and Dennis have five kids now. In fact, they, they, uh, they, their youngest was adopted from Taiwan a few years ago. Uh, their oldest will graduate from high school soon. Shelby's a counselor now. She helps kids and young adults, many of whom face similar issues to what she faced. But man, she loves Jesus. And it, it would have been really easy for the Godbolts to send Shelby back home. Hey, look, we're having family time now. This is like, we need to keep boundaries uh, it would have been easy to not pick her up from church or for church, but by God's grace, the long game of loving in the mundane reaped a great harvest. Now, I wish all of our stories, and I know, I know many of you that, that have stories similar to this, people that you've invested in, that you've brought into your family, and by God's grace, God has done amazing things, but, but not every story works that way. I wish every story was like this. I wish every opportunity was a Shelby. But I am convinced that, that God's vision for our life and our ministry, it, it's, it's so much bigger and yet so much simpler than I ever imagined, than I ever really make it out to be. Many of you probably heard John Piper uh, tell the story of, of what he calls the tragedy of, of American ideas of retirement. Um, that men and women would, would waste the last 20 years of their life before seeing their creator simply collecting shells. Uh, if, you haven't, if you haven't seen this sermon by John Piper, just Google that, shells, Piper. You'll, it'll be the first thing that pops up. Um, and his iconic line in the sermon is, <clears throat> is, is that as men and women face God in eternity, that they go, hey, God, look at my shells. 
But I think the Lord Jesus and, and, and Paul here, here in Acts 17 would have us heed the same warning. What if we were to spend 20 years in our neighborhood and soul after soul lived near us, eating and sleeping 20 or 30 yards away from us, and yet many never know Jesus. They're trying to make sense of life, never understanding love, some suffering through abuse or depression. And then at the end of, of our time in our house, we would say, man, but look at my beautiful lawn, God. My house was too messy, Lord. I didn't really want to have anybody inside. That's the one, that's the one that we use. Look how great our backyard oasis was. It got us away from the neighbors. That's the new thing, right? May the Lord grant us a more eternal view than this. A supernatural view of our neighborhood. May God help us to see souls and not just houses. That every resource we have, every extracurricular program our kids are in, every neighbor that you always see when you walk your dog, every kid that plays outside that looks like their parent is just not around. Every lonely coworker, every single parent, every elderly couple, every talkative neighbor, all of it, it's all an opportunity. And it's not, not just an opportunity, it's the, it may be the very reason that you're there. I think in this way, making much of Jesus is so directional. It's just so right in front of us. Who is your neighbor? Who is your neighbor in need today? Third is this, that God neighbored us. In verse 27, Paul says, he did this so they might seek God and perhaps they might reach out and find him, though he is not far from each of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we also are his offspring. I love that he says we're his offspring, that, we're, that, we're, that he's our father, and he's quoting their poets, which is kind of fascinating, right? Because Paul's not lacking for content, right? Paul wrote Romans. So like if he, he wrote the Romans road, he could have said the Romans road to the Areopagus, but instead he quotes a poem about Zeus. So we'll put that in our kind of theological framework. But he, he quotes this poem about Zeus and he says, you, you have a father and it's not Zeus. God can be your father. He's way better than Zeus. And, and so as we think about our neighbors, don't, don't miss that their story is really our story. Everything they need is what we needed. Befriending a neighbor isn't about telling them what God demands of them. It's telling them what God did for you. And God was the best neighbor that there was. We were the annoying neighbor. We were the hateful friend. We were the vandalizing kids. We were the murderer. And still he came near. Eugene Peterson paraphrases John 1.14 this way. This is such a classic passage, John 1, where we hear in scripture that the word became flesh and dwelt or tabernacled among us. But here's what Peter, how Peterson paraphrases it. He says, the word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. We saw the glory with our own eyes, the one of a kind glory, like father, like son, generous inside and out, true from start to finish. God was the neighbor that we needed. Jesus Christ, the most generous, know what you need before you ask, mow your lawn, bring you dinner, forgive your sins sort of neighbor. And a few verses later, Paul's gonna tell him 
that this neighbor died for you and he is alive. He was resurrected from the dead. This, this alive from the dead savior who came near to you because he lives now, everything has changed. And that's true for us, isn't it? From how we handle our money to how we suffer to how we think about work to with what we do with our free time. We see the creation differently. We approach marriage differently. What used to be of utmost importance it has now been supplanted by Christ. Now comfort, pleasure, power, wealth, acceptance, these no longer drive us. They used to consume us, but, but now they have no power over us. And so as we move into the lives of our neighbors, the very pursuits that once dominated us, the temptations that still call for our affection, when we see these idols in our neighbors and our friends, we don't think we're better than them. We don't feel like we're superior. No, we, we see ourselves in them. Their story is our story. And we love them. We're patient with them. We want for them what we have found in Christ. Even if they never believe, we're compelled to still love them that in hopes that one day they might know the freedom that's found in Jesus. A final catalyst for loving our neighbors well is this. Number four, a plan. So it's easy to hear a message like this um, and be like, all right, I gotta go love my neighbor better. Um, and I preach a sermon like this and I go, man, I gotta love my neighbors better. Um, and it's the same with like you hear a sermon on spiritual disciplines. You're like, man, tomorrow, tomorrow's the day. I'm gonna wake up at 4 a.m. and I'm gonna, um, but then there's like, if there's not a plan, right, it's hard. Um, it just kind of becomes motivation that just lingers in the past. Like, I, I remember when I was motivated to do that. Um, so I want to I give us six ways uh, to, to engage our neighbors. A few of these I've adapted from Rosario Butterfield's book, The Gospel Comes with a House Key. If you've not read this book, um, I would encourage you to do it. Her, her story is fantastic. Um, an atheist, she hated God, but the Lord used the faithful hospitality of a Christian couple to soften her heart. And eventually, she was one to Jesus and so because of this, she has a real, just a real heart for hospitality and they practice it uh, in their neighborhood. So, so I wanna give us six uh, ways to engage our neighbors. Number one, make contact. Make contact. Ha have you met your neighbors? Maybe, maybe write down their names. Maybe like just get a piece of paper and draw your house, draw the houses all around your house and go, can I put names in those? Like, do I know who's there? Do I know the different people, the different souls that are in those houses? I mean, this is a great opportunity. There was a big, if you didn't know it, there was a really big storm last week with a lot of ice and a lot of people had some problems in their houses. It would be a great chance. Maybe just need to go knock on your neighbor's door. Hey, I don't know if we've met before. Did you, are you okay? You got everything you need? Is there anything we can help with? What, tell me your name. I don't think we've ever met. Maybe it's, maybe it's an opportunity. Make contact. Number two, don't make them a project. People may never believe. They may... They may politely sidestep all our talk of the Lord, and that's okay. Don't give up on them. Be their friend and just see what happens. Our friendship is not contingent upon them believing or on them changing for us. Be in it for the long haul. Jesus was a friend of sinners. The scriptures did not say that Jesus was only a friend of people who would in the future not be sinners. Don't love the future them. Love them now. Number three, celebrate the goodness in your unbelieving neighbors. 
Isn't it amazing how some of the most nice people that you know, that we all know, are not Christians? And I don't think this should necessarily be a condemnation of us or Christianity. Um, it should certainly convict us. Uh, but when you, when you see this, this is God's grace. This is God's common grace. And it's the image of God on display in a neighbor, in a friend. Even in those who are not Christians. What do you see in your non-Christian friends? Do, do they work hard? Do they serve sacrificially? Well, then say something to them. Acknowledge it, praise them for it. Say, man, you, you, the way you serve reminds me of how Jesus serves. See the good things that God, the common graces in them. Number four, take interest in what the neighbors value. So help with the neighborhood project. Be a blessing. While others went cheap at parties, what did Jesus do in his first miracle? He brought out, he brought out the better wine. He brought the good stuff. So, so be that sort of neighbor. Be a blessing. Go above and beyond in serving. Find something that's, that, the neighbor, that the neighborhood needs and, and be a part of helping them with it. Number five, look out for old, old people and children. The, these are ones and ones like them that are, are, are ones that often our culture overlooks. And Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit. And often those who are overlooked are the most ready to hear about Jesus. So find them, help them, see what they need. And then number six, eat with people. I don't even think that probably requires a lot of explanation. Like, what do you do with your friends? You eat, like you get a meal. If a friend calls and says, hey, should we should hang out. What do you say? Let's get lunch. Right? You don't go like, let's meet up at three o'clock in the afternoon. No, you're like, let's meet at noon and eat a burger. I mean, like that's eat with people, share a meal, invite them over. And I, 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 look, this is, this is very much like, the, these are those middle of the second inning, um, mundane moments. Just start somewhere, Do, get in the game, hit a single. I'm so encouraged to see how you guys are doing this already. Many of you, several people have been writing down notes on, on the sticky board out there at the outreach table of things you're doing this month to, to, to love your neighbors. I saw somebody wrote that they built a chicken coop for their neighbors. Um, that's awesome, right? Get involved, know your neighbors, serve them, love them. And, 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 and use a catalyst like a storm to do it. Uh, you guys are doing awesome. Yeah, really are. You're doing amazing things. Make a plan, figure out how will you get in the game. Make space in, in, in your life for your kids to know the neighborhood kids. Invite a family for dinner. I've heard some of you doing uh, block parties. I think before COVID, at least, this was like, a, we're, we're doing better at things like this. The Odoms, I remember, were throwing block parties. Others were having monthly dinners for people in their cul-de-sac. Whatever it may be, make a plan and go for it. All these things, they take time. They take resources. Butterfield talks about how practicing hospitality has doubled, even tripled their grocery budget. Just do what you can. Use what you have. Open your home, open your driveway, open your backyard, open your budget. Amy and I often feel like our house has to be spotless, like we've got to have everything ready to have people into our lives, and the reality is that's just not going to happen. Uh, like, we got four kids, it's not, it's not happening, so we've got to figure out how are we going to invite people into our space and, 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 and live life with them. I, I, I don't preach this sermon as one who excels. I preach as one who is in need of God's grace to walk this out. This 
quote from Butterfield is great. She says, Christian hospitality brings together the mysteries of union with Christ and the fellowship of the saints to gather in, in close the stranger and the outcast and the, chrono, uh, the chronically lonely. We make gospel bridges into our home because we notice the people around us and their needs. We see people whom God has put into our lives, especially the difficult ones, as image bearers of a holy God and therefore deserving of our best. What will happen when we see and declare the beauty of God to our neighbors, when we join them during disaster, when we weep when their kids are straying, when we comfort them in their grief, when we tell them that they can't outrun, they can't outsin the grace of God that, that offers forgiveness to them. And I think like Paul, some will ridicule. Some may be our friends, even though they're skeptical, they may listen. But by God's grace, look at the end of Acts 17 and we'll close with this. Verse 32, it says, when they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some began to ridicule him. But others said, we'd like to hear from you again about this. So Paul left their presence. However, some people joined him and believed including Dionysius, the Areopagite, a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Many listened to Paul, but at least two, maybe more, they believed. By God's grace, some of your neighbors will believe too. Represented in this, in, in this room, I, I believe there is a neighbor. There is a Tomball resident. There is someone in our area, a friend of yours, a coworker of yours, and they know nothing about the love of Jesus right now. They know nothing about the one who's resurrected from the dead. But as the Lord opens the door for you to love them, for you to care about their life, to share of Jesus with them, a year from now, maybe two years from now, maybe five years from now, they'll sit here in one of these chairs. They'll lift their voices and raise their hands in worship to their now king. They'll take the bread and the cup and then they'll tell their story of how God came after them through their crazy neighbor. Why? Because you were faithful. Because you walked across the street. Because you befriended them. You loved them as Jesus loves you. Let me pray for us. Father, would you give us your grace? We can hear this and be overwhelmed, and yet we know we, what we need. As we need for no longer us to be neighbors, but for you, Jesus, to be a neighbor through us. for your spirit to empower us to love as you have loved us. God, would you help us put to death our selfishness, our propensity to, to hide ourselves from those around us. And would you help us to walk in love that is unquestionably from you. So God, we, we need you in this. We need your grace, in Christ's name, amen.